Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, Psalm 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 2. If you open up your Bible to the middle, chances are you're going to open to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 2 this morning as we seek to make sense of a senseless world. Psalm 2, making sense of a senseless world. July 4th on a Sunday, what's a preacher to do? Some would say, well, you ignore it and you just preach the next passage as though it were any other day. Some say, no, 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 no. You, you, you preach a miracle for America as Adrian Rogers once preached a sermon. You, you preach a special sermon for that day. There are some in our world who so deify political power and national might that they are like Abraham, who entering into a new city was so afraid of the powers in political authority that he sold his own wife off as his sister. He said, they're going to kill me if they know that she's my wife. So I'm going to tell the political powers that she's my sister and that way they'll like me. He deified the national political power. There are others uh, maybe of us who more have uh, the attitude of Nathaniel who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth when we think of this world? Well, the book of Acts helps us, Luke helps us to think biblically about what God is doing in our world as Luke recorded Jesus' birth and uh, life and death. And then as he recorded the story of the early church, Luke often scattered political cues throughout the story. So we think of when Jesus was born, Luke pointed out who was governor at the time. And then in Acts chapter 1, Luke records Jesus and the disciples having an interaction and the disciples said, Lord, will you now at this time restore power to the kingdom of Israel, restore the kingdom? That was a political aspiration. Throughout Paul's journey, Luke would record how he interacted with politicians and even to the point where Paul said, man, if I can get the gospel to Rome, the political power of the day, then I can really make a difference. So what are we to do? How are we to think biblically about this world in which we live? Well, we're going to turn our attention to Psalm 2 in order to answer this question. There's a general consensus that Psalms 1 and 2 have been placed at the beginning of the book of Psalms to serve as a twofold introduction to the entire book. Psalm 1 gives us the purpose of the book of Psalms and Psalm 2 gives us the overall message or the setting in which we find ourselves. Derek Kidner explains Psalm 2 is unsurpassed for its buoyant, fierce delight in God's dominion and his promise to his king. What a need we have today. Buoyant, fierce delight in God's dominion and his promise to his king. So let's turn our attention to Psalm 2, and we're going to see, as you can tell, four ways, four ways that we can make sense of a senseless world, four parameters for forming a biblical worldview. Number one is to mourn the sinfulness of man. The psalmist opens, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take count together against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us the psalmist begins with the popular question why 
You and I have both answered that question, sometimes through laughter because we just don't understand the situation, sometimes through tears. Why? Why is this happening to me? Why isn't that happening to me? Why doesn't that work? Why did that fall apart? Why? Why? You've asked that question. I've asked that question. There are times throughout the book of Psalms where the psalmist will ask that question of very intimate personal details. So for example, Psalm 42, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Many of us have asked that why question. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Here in Psalm 2, he's not looking inward. He's looking outward. He's looking at the world in which he lives. He's opening up his phone to the news app, so to speak. And he's saying, why is that going on in the world? You've asked that question as well. Why do the nations rage? And then he reiterates it. He says the same thing a couple of times. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed? Why? Why has the world rejected the God who made it? Why has the creation despised the creator? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The nations rejected the Lord because they thought they could do better without him. This is the same rebellion which we see in Genesis 3 when that serpent whispered to Eve, did God really say? Which was just his way of saying the Lord's commands are burdensome. You'd do better without him. You should reject the Lord and reject his his burdensome commands. He's keeping you from joy, not leading you into it. And so Adam and Eve said, okay, we'll we'll go with you. We see the same thing in Romans chapter one, where creation despised and rejected the creator and said, we think we can do better without you. We think that we'd experience more joy, more thriving, more flourishing without you. But friends, God's commands are never burdensome. Though in our sin, we rebel against the giver of life and the easy yoke with which he would guide us. We're like a fish that is sick and tired of being limited to his fish tank. Every day he sees his oppressive owner pour a few measly makes flakes of stale fish food into his aquatic prison cell. But not today. Today he's done. Today he's going to burst the bonds. Today he casts the cords away. Today he's breaking out of this tank. And so he does. With all his muscular might, he catapults himself out of the tank. Freedom, he screams as he flies through the air and lands on the rug outside the tank. He looks at his surroundings from this new liberated perspective. And then his lungs begin to burn. The gills which once filtered the water and the air are now gasping for nourishment. His body flops for a moment and then he dies. So is the man who says to God, I can do better without your commands. Your commands are burdensome. I'm breaking out of the tank. 
Do you see the sinfulness of man? Do you see it in your own heart? Do you see it in ruining your neighbor and your nation? Do you see politics and politicians who stand against the Lord? Not, not that all of them do, but do you see those that do? do you, these things ought to break our heart. Do you see these things in your world and in your own heart? And do you mourn it? Do you mourn the sinfulness of man? As you look around this country, do not be content with seeing political problems, but trace the problem to the source the sinful heart of man, and let us mourn over it. And then, point two, let us remember the sovereignty of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He who sits in the heavens laughs. God is shown to be sitting in the heavens. He is the king. He's on the throne, just like we just sang, and he's laughing. This is a picture of his sovereignty. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases, Proverbs 21. Now, why does God want you to know Psalm 2? Why does, you want to, why does he want you to know that while the nations rage, the Lord laughs? For your comfort. For you to trust his sovereignty when you see the tumultuous waves of earthly turmoil and trouble. He who sits in the heavens laughs, not because he's cruel, not because he doesn't weep with those who weep, but because he is utterly and always in control. Christian, when you look around your nation, remember the sovereignty of God. When you read the headlines of what is happening in our world, remember the sovereignty of God. Uh, um, Zach mentioned Canada earlier. We've seen a number of pastors be imprisoned in Canada in the past couple of months. What are we supposed to do? How do we make sense of that? We remember that the Lord is on the throne. The Lord sits in heaven. The nations rage and the Lord laughs. Think of the book of Esther. Those of you familiar with the Old Testament right, might remember the story. It's a comedy intended to make you laugh and to make you worship. You have the Persian king, Ahasuerus, the most powerful ruler on earth. And within his royal court, Haman, the king's second in command, manipulates his way into the king's favor by robbing the credit due to a man named Mordecai. So you have King Ahasuerus, you have Haman the second in command, and then you have a man that Haman elbowed out for credit named, Haman, named uh, Mordecai. Mordecai had stopped an assassination plot against the king, but Haman had edged him out and received the credit. Now King Ahasuerus only realized that when he can't sleep one night, and he says, I'm wrestling with insomnia, what should I do? And so he breaks open the historical scrolls and reads the stories of his own reign. There's part of the irony in the whole book, right? This guy can't, this king can't sleep. And he says, I need a book that'll put me to sleep. Oh, I know, I'll read the story of my life. Right? Hopefully, if you want to get some sleeping reading, you won't read the story of your life, but that's what he did. And so he reads the story and he finds out, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Mordecai's the one that saved me from the assassination plot, but Haman's the one that got credit. Okay, that's not right. So King Ahasuerus calls in Haman one day, and he says, I was reading last night of a great servant of the king who is due great honor. How should I honor him? Haman thinks that the king is referring to him, so he really, he pulls out all the stops. Well, king, you should roll the, out the red carpet. You should give this man all the money. You should open up the, the treasury. You should, I mean, this guy should have a national day named after him. All of it rolls it out. 
But to his, surpri- his surprise and dismay, it is not Haman who is honored, but Mordecai. And eventually, Haman is found out and executed. One commentator explains this reversal in Esther recalls Psalm 2, where the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed servant. However, such threats and challenges are so weak against the Lord of glory that he can't help but laugh at their devices and schemes. The one laughing is not only the reader, but also the Lord. Indeed, the thought that any creature is capable of undermining the sovereign will of God is so ridiculous, it is comic. We cannot help but laugh and to laugh with the Lord. So the nations rage, but the Lord laughs. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. One day God will say a final amen. He will speak to the rebellious nations in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. This will not be like a toddler's temper tantrum, but will be an outpouring that that will make the world's most violent military efforts seem like child's play. And look at the centerpiece of his sovereignty what he has done with Jesus. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This leads us to the third point. Delight in the supremacy of Christ. Delight in the supremacy of Christ. As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see that God has set Jesus on Zion. When we watch political elections uh, occur, we need to remember, Remember, God has set Jesus on Zion. He is not elected in and he can't be voted out. God has declared that Jesus is his son. Of all of the voices competing for our attention, let the voice that rings loudest be that of God the Father that says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Trust him, follow him, obey him, and see that God has given Jesus authority over the nations. Puritan Stephen Sharnock wrote in the 17th century, whatever be the plots of hell and earth to the contrary, Christ reigns by his father's ordination. Whatever be the plots of hell and earth to the contrary, Christ reigns by the father's ordination, which means nothing that can happen on earth can take Jesus off the throne. The father has ordained him We can't unordain him. We're not that strong. God the Father delights in the supremacy of Christ the Son. Do you, do you delight in the supremacy of Jesus above all things? Is he the one that has the most of your affections? John Owen writes, the foundation of our religion, the rock on which the church is built, the ground of all our hopes of salvation, of life and immortality is the revelation that is made of God's nature and will by Jesus Christ. So if Christ fails, if he, the light of the world, becomes darkness, then we are forever lost. But if this rock stands firm, the church is safe and shall be triumphant forever. There is no subject sweeter to the Christian than the supremacy of Christ. And whatever waves may toss and turn our boat, Christ is our anchor, sure and certain. 
and we ought to delight ourselves in this. Some of us feel a good and right sense of patriotism when we see the American flag raised. Not idolatry, but gratitude. Personally, I feel this uh, during the fifth inning of the Peninsula Pilots baseball games. They take a moment and they ask all of the past and present military men and women to stand so that we can express our gratitude. And you'll see old men and young men, old women and young women of all races and, 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 and uh, ethnicities stand up because they've served. Some of them will have shirts or hats that show or tell you where they've served. And all of the attendees, all of the people watching the game will look around and, and notice and make eye contact and they'll clap. And all of the players from both teams will come out onto the field and they'll tip their hats to show their gratitude and the umpires will turn around, not facing the field anymore, but facing the men and women who have served our country, and they'll express their gratitude. And you just can't help it in that moment, but feel that sense of patriotism, and rightly so. The crowd erupts in applause as heads turn to see those men and women standing. I love it. I think that it is good and right. And yet, the swelling up of pride in my chest at that moment ought to pale in comparison to the praise that swells up in my heart as I think of Christ, my King. Delight yourself in the supremacy of Christ. And we think about it, Jesus inherited the nations and we think about how did he do that? Through the cross, through his death and resurrection, he inherited the nations. Let us delight in the supremacy of Christ. And fourthly and finally, let us obey the summons to respond. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Finally, we must understand that God is calling the world to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. There is no other way to peace with God than through Jesus Christ. You cannot work your way into it as an individual. Elected officials cannot lead us there as a nation. You can only have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And those kings and rulers which raged against the son in verse three are summoned to be wise, to be warned, to serve the Lord, rejoice with trembling, and to kiss the son in verse 12. And do not think that God has any different summons for you. Come to Christ, hide yourself in him, take refuge in him, find the blessing that is known only and exclusively through him. And Christian, give yourself to making Christ known to your neighbors and the nations. Those same nations which raged against the Lord in Psalm 2, God has made them the inheritance of Jesus. And Jesus has commanded us to make disciples of all nations. We'll often think that the task of reaching others for Jesus is for the really good Christians. But it's not. It's for every Christian. God intends to use you to reach those around you, not because you're the perfect missionary, but because you belong to him. I want you to grab the communion elements that are in the seats around you in the uh, back of the pew.